It is okay to listen fully and then disagree fully and then take strong steps to act based on what you think is true. Disagreement, not agreement, is often the best outcome of listening well to another person. Sometimes the best result of listening well is in seeing exactly how to disempower a harmful perspective. Those are the words of my guest today, Mr. Ethan Nickturn. Ethan has been described as a, quote, super cool, deeply kind brainiac, a sort of chilled out blend of Paul's Oster and Rudd, who is also to the cushion born. Those are the words uh, of a columnist from Vogue. So Ethan is a Buddhist teacher for over 20 years. He's taught meditation and Buddhist psychology, which we talk extensively about on today's show. He has primarily studied the uh, Shambhala and Tibetan traditions, but he's also studied Theravadan and Soto Zen Buddhism. He is an avid yoga practitioner and has served Shastri and senior teacher in residence for the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York from 2010 to 2018. He has done some incredible work. He's worked with some uh, amazing teachers and practitioners, and he has written a few books, one of which is called The Road Home, a contemporary explanation, uh, exploration of the Buddhist path. And his most recent book, which is quite interesting, we don't talk about it on this show, unfortunately, The Dharma of the Princess Bride, What the Coolest Fairy Tale of Our Time Can Teach Us About Buddhism and Relationships. So, what do we talk about today? We talk about a number of things. We actually look at the practicality of Buddhism in a chaotic time. And Ethan does a great job of breaking down some of the Four Noble Truths, their application to our everyday life, how these principles are often misconstrued and misrepresented. And we talk about certain Buddhist principles and, and different pieces of Buddhist psychology that play into our everyday lives. And so in a time where there seems to be more chaos, more confusion, uh, more quote-unquote suffering, Buddhism offers a form of path that allows us to navigate those waters. We also went to a, a bit of a discourse around practicing some of the Buddhist principles in a very practical way. So how to observe our thoughts, our emotional experience, and Ethan breaks some of those components down. So this is a very rich conversation from a Buddhist lens and someone who has been steeped in this tradition for a very long time. So without any further delay, please welcome my guest, Ethan Nickturn. Thanks so much for having me, Connor. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation today and diving into a few different topics. But let's start off with the question that I uh, put all my guests through, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, I think I want to tell the story of how getting dumped for the first time made me a Buddhist. Um, okay, great. <laughs> That's <laughs> the breakup was so bad that I that I had to go straight Zen. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I so I, I grew up with Buddhist parents who were both artist. My dad's a musician and, and composer. My mom was a painter and then a chef who uh, mm -hmm. eventually became later in life became a psychotherapist. Grew up in what came to be known as the Shambhala community, Chogyam Trungpa, who was a huge progenitor of Buddhism and especially Tibetan Buddhism in the Western world. So I, I grew up with it and I have a lot of, you know, cool stories like Allen Ginsberg teaching poetry lessons to us kids, you know, because he was part of the same 
community and not at all caring that I was receiving a poetry lesson from Allen Ginsberg. I was like, who is this person? But I, I got more into Buddhist philosophy throughout high school. I, I kind of, it wasn't, I mean, it was my thing, but it was really my parents' thing. But I, I really started to get into Buddhist philosophy throughout high school. And I wasn't cool in high school, but I like, I was friends with everybody. So like, I knew the cool kids. <laughs> and they, they let me hang around with them. And I knew that what, whatever, I mean, it's such a so ridiculous how much uh, emphasis we put on different categories of clickiness. But I got to college and I did not like college. The two things I thought I wanted to do, I always wanted to be a writer, but I couldn't get into a writing class my freshman year. I hope Brown University has changed, but like literally a freshman could not get into a creative writing class. Uh, and I was like, what, what am I doing here then? And why didn't you tell me that before I came? But I had my first girlfriend, and she lived right down the hall from me. And basically, within two or three weeks of school starting, we were just hanging out night and day. And we spent the whole year together. And I forgot to make any friends uh, in college, <laughs> you know, forgot, you know, was mesmerized, whatever, you know, you know, how love will do that to you. Over the next summer, she eventually broke up with me, which, you know, all, all power to you. I know a few people who've been together since college, and I always think it's kind of weird. All of us get broken up with. And uh, yeah, I, I got back to school my sophomore year, and I hated it and hated myself. And that's when I really started really embracing meditation and Buddhism full on. You know, I guess that was my uh, first noble truth. The truth of the truth of suffering came in strongly. Yeah. And since then, I've been really, you know, interested in, in Buddhism's application to, to lots of different areas of the world, you know, Western psychology, art, activism, and yeah, eventually became a teacher. And my, my first reason for becoming a teacher was there were just really not a lot of young people getting into meditation Buddhism. This is like 2001, 2002. And uh, I had been taking a lot of Buddhist classes in the Shambhala community. And I was always the youngest person by like 20 years. So and it had been so helpful to me to trying to figure out kind of heartbreak and how to deal with my own heart and mind that I just was like, why, why are there not, you know, more, more people in, well, I guess I'm late generation X, why are there not more people, you know, doing this, you know, never mind other other questions of, of diversity and inclusiveness in mindfulness and wellness and spiritual communities. So yeah, I, getting dumped made me, you know, my parents introduced me to Buddhism, but getting dumped made me a Buddhist. That's my story. What was it like to grow up in a in a family environment where that Buddhism was so prevalent? Because like I think about the sort of traditional upbringing, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, I don't know if traditional, but I think in North America, I grew up in a Catholic home and went to church every Sunday. And so what's, you know, what was sort of different about your experience and, and how did you view it? Because I always sort of had a resistance towards the sort of structure that I was growing up and I find that that's very prominent, right? That, that usually kids, they either adopt it fully or they reject it <laughs> fully and then, you know, find their own way later on in life. So what was yours? Yeah, my parents were both, I mean, I, I had other, I don't have really any, any lingering issues with, with either of my parents. Um, we, we have really healthy friendships and relationships, but my parents were both super supportive of me finding my own way 
Um, they had a hard time with each other and ended up splitting up when I was 10, but didn't put any pressure on me. You know, sometimes they were going to sit for 45 minutes or something and say, do you want to come sit? You know, for the first five minutes, you know, we would have conversations that I know blended Buddhism in. And I started really when I was becoming contrarian and interested in philosophy and the world would read some Buddhist books like Chogyam Trungpa or Suzuki Roshi or Thich Nhat Hanh or mm. Ram Das, which doesn't technically, you know, count as Buddhist, but is, you know, in, in the same stadium. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One ballpark over maybe. And, uh, you know, it, it just, there was a lot of room to rebel and it was, it's kind of fine to, to struggle with the ideas and contemplate them and resist mm. them. I think my parents both had an, you know, an interesting like I think their rebellions were more strong. Like uh, my dad's a New York Jewish family and my mom's, you know, grew up, uh, well, her family went to a Presbyterian church in Stuttgart, Arkansas. And then uh, I think her family mostly goes to Meth uh, Methodist church now, but you know, she was from the South and actually fled to go to art school and then eventually came to New York. So I do imagine sometimes in my book, the road home, I talk about sort of how mindfulness in Buddhism has taken off. And I sort of imagine my mom's conversations with her parents in, in Stuttgart, Arkansas, if she had any in the early 1970s, telling them that she was following a wild and crazy Tibetan Buddhist teacher <laughs> <laughs> around now. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about my upbringing was I grew up in New York City and went to very progressive private schools that were very diverse. And so having a thing, you know, as a as a straight white boy, like being the Buddhist kid was kind of my thing that was sort of like, mm -hmm. like my, oh, he's the Buddhist kid, you know, so you kind of play, the, you play the card in that mm -hmm. situation, which, I mean, it's, it's kind of a little bit fetishizing, but it's nice to be in, I think it's better to be in a situation where you try to play up what's unique about yourself, then try to, conf everybody's just trying to conform, you know, yeah. to some kind of overarching. So it was definitely part of my like, uh, sort of, you know, and I can't remember if that's actually if I if I played up that point to to get my freshman year college girlfriend. I probably did. This sure. <laughs> <laughs> is just playing the Buddhist card. Yeah, playing who knew? Card. Who knew that that was a that was a thing up until now? Like, I don't think it would work anymore because it's like twenty five years later, and everybody's like, "So what?" You know? Yeah, everyone. I, I mean, yeah. I think I was reading somewhere that something like forty or forty two percent of Americans identify as. Uh, what do they call it? Spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. And it's like one of the fastest growing, I guess, faith identifications in America. I, you know, I think it's it's interesting because I think Buddhism has played a large role in, you know, Zen and sort of Eastern philosophies have played a large role in being able to have people find some form of a spiritual path when the sort of traditional structures of religion are no longer appealing to to people. And that the the sort of like strict dogma that you have to follow or or the the sort of very specific ways in which you need to worship have are, are maybe not appealing to people in the same ways that they used to. But I think that's maybe a little bit of a different conversation. I wanted to actually do a few things in our conversation today. One, I wanted to ask you about Buddhist psychology, because you, you actually teach you teach meditation and Buddhist psychology and 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 philosophy. And I would love to just disseminate that a little bit. And and then I want to move into, you know, how does Buddhism actually apply to our modern world today in a time where there is a lot of disorientation, where truth seems to be kind of an enigma in some ways, which 
almost fits into the Buddhist philosophy, right? Like if you look at something like the Tao, you know, the first line, the Tao that's called the Tao is not the Tao. So it's like, as soon as you call it the thing, it's not the thing anymore. Mm -hmm. So I know those are a few questions. Maybe I'll backtrack and ask you one question, uh, which is how did Buddhism help you in your breakup? Because I feel like I could hear some of my audience being like, oh, wait, I've gone through a breakup or I'm going through a divorce. Yeah. Like, how does how would those sort of mindfulness practices support me or what, you know, what can I do? So maybe just speak a little bit to that before we. Get yeah, to the- yeah. I'm not sure if at that point, I mean, I had been meditating a bit in high school and I'm not sure that it was a ton of formal meditation practice. I mean, mm-hmm. I did. I remember, you know, re-getting into meditation practice like my sophomore year of college after that happened. But I'm not sure that was the helpful part. You know, I mean, you know, Pema Chodron, who some friends refer to as the Buddhist gateway drug, which I think is, you know, I mean, she, she's a she's a wonderful senior <laughs> Buddhist teacher. But I, I I like that. I think that's a kind of a, a sweet and complimentary designation. You know, like the book that always makes the rounds of hers is called When Things Fall Apart, right? Which is also a great roots song, right? <laughs> True. Yes. But, um, and and you know one of the greatest African novels of all time. But anyway, I think it's really about just working with the fact that the realization that somebody figured out that the world is always in a state of coming together and falling apart, and mm. so it actually gives you like kind of a a place to land in your desolation. You know, it actually like. There's something about heartbreak. There's something about a a sense of failure. There's something about disappointment that I think we take so personally. I mean, it is personal. It's happening to us, but, but that we take as a like personal failure as if we are misaligned with reality in some way. And I think that that just the truth of impermanence and the truth of like brokenheartedness is actually if we can be present with it and stabilize a kind of awareness around it, we are actually aligned with reality. We're actually aligned with being human, you know? So it reframes the disappointment, not that you should like seek out the disappointment and become more cynical or like sabotage relationships because, you know, they're impermanent, but it, it normalizes it and it humanizes it in a way that's very, very present moment and just very tender. I think. Mm. And, you know, and some of it was like, then, you know, like reading, you know, beat poets. And like, actually, then that was when I started reading somebody like Allen Ginsberg and like being like, Oh, okay, like, this is <laughs> that guy who taught me those po- that two poetry lessons is like one of the most famous po- poets of the 20th century, right? <laughs> um, I think having an appreciation of heartbreak as like, actually, I mean, Pema Chodron and others call it the soft spot, you know, and just learning to appreciate that it's a very human experience and it's actually the core of our human experience to be to have things fall apart on us and how to actually make that a a hallmark of our human existence rather than some kind of failure or some kind of confusion or problem Hmm. yeah well well said thank you for that i mean i think what's interesting is that it seems like part of the challenges that we are facing maybe culturally or societally in in the west is a byproduct of our maybe not inability but certainly our sort of resistance to 
coming into deeper contact and understanding with simple things like death and grief and suffering. And we, we have opted out from those things and traded them in for somewhat of a, an ascension based culture where we're obsessed with growth. You know, we're obsessed with, with things that feel life giving rather than life deconstructing in some ways. And I'm curious how that do you do you feel like that is is true in some ways and and how would that sort of fit in with buddhist philosophy because i think in from that limited understanding that i have around buddhism and and buddhist philosophy it is very much about i think in some ways staying in contact and being aware of right being conscious of suffering but not necessarily becoming engulfed by it right be sort of becoming it in in general and i think that's what the four noble truths sort of speak about in, in some way but i'll let you elaborate on that <laughs> sure 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 yeah i mean so i don't i don't know that the problem I, I don't know that i would say the problem with our cultural society from a buddhist perspective is that we're we are i i agree that we're obsessed with like ascension or success or consumption or status I don't know that the Buddhist view would be that that it's anti-life giving because life is like things coming into birth, things coming into being, you know, hmm. things coming into their phase of growth is just as much uh, a hallmark of impermanence as, you know, we we never call the springtime the death of winter. Right. You know? But that is what it is. Right. Yeah. Winter died, but we don't care because now it's springtime. Right. So, so birth, it's, it's about that notion of process, I think, and sort of tuning into process. And, and then I think that the four noble truths are like this word that I think gets very biblically translated as suffering, dukkha, which probably would be um, better translated as like a, a misalignment with experience mm. is that there's, there's a kind of friction and struggle against our humanness because we want to fixate and we want to hold on or we want to reject, right? And so the Four Noble Truths are describing a kind of state of the mind that's in a friction against reality, mm. um, which is also a very human human experience. But the, the idea is that that can be worked on and, and resolved. So I, I wouldn't say that the Buddhist view is that suffering is inherent. It's that it's, it's also just like all these other things is a very human experience, but it, it can be worked with it. We, we can kind of re envision our relationship to our experience in a way that is, that is more harmonious. And that starts with, you know, shifting our relationship to our own mind and our own mental processes of how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive the world, how we perceive others, and how we're in relationship to all that. So yeah, I mean, th there's, it's, it's interesting to think about like what a Buddhist critique of like modern culture, you know, actually would be because there would be so many ways to um, <laughs> so many ways to start that conversation. And I, I don't know, I don't even know if you need a Buddhist critique of, of the modern world so much as just a humanist, like, you know, that's fair. Is, is, that's this, fair. is this, is this, is this a sane and loving way to, to create right. human society? You know? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I hear you saying is that there's, when we create that friction against what is against reality, against what is true, subjectively, objectively, intersubjectively, that that's where suffering is produced, that, that, right. but that friction is a natural byproduct of the human experience cognitively is that accurate right right but what yeah. the four noble truths say is you don't actually have to 
that, that friction can be resolved, which is the right. third noble truth, right? It's not, so it's interesting because sometimes people translate the first noble truth as life is suffering, uh-huh. which is which is not what the, the, the sutra just says, the truth of dukkha, what, however you want to translate that word. It doesn't say all life is dukkha. It just mm-hmm. says the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. And if you think that is, you know, life is dukkha, then you just have to read two more lines to figure out why that's contradictory. Because the third is dukkha can be ceased, cessation of dukkha. So, so it's not, it's not intrinsic. It's based on a misperception that can be resolved, but, Interesting. but impermanence is intrinsic, right? That, that, that is the, the sort of, the, and therefore I think the heartbreak aspect that the tender aspect of human experience is intrinsic because you are, you know, you know, I mean, I feel it like my daughter's almost four years old and I was just looking at baby pictures the other day and you're just like, you know, I, and this is every cliche, like I should have seen this coming. It's like every cliche you've ever heard about parenting is mm-hmm. this is going to happen. And you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Or, oh, that's so sweet, but whatever. And then you're like, wow, you know, that's just three years ago. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh my God. I know. <laughs> I know I have a I have a nine week old son. Oh, congratulations! And yeah, thank you, thank you. And it was funny. My my wife just came back in with him. She was just out right before our interview, and I swear he was only gone for an hour. But the joy that I experienced in in seeing him again after he was just gone for an hour, but then also realizing I sent my family photos of him the other day, like two month old photos. Right, he turned two months. And doing the sort of obligatory sending the family photos, and my family hasn't been able to see him yet because they're all in Canada, and so it's been a bit of a strange dynamic where my wife's family has been, you know, seeing him quite a bit, but my family hasn't been able to mm. to come and see him yet. And uh, and I sent my family photos of you know him be, turning two months old. I was like, holy crap! Like it's already been two months. It feels like this went by in a blink of an eye, and it's. I think it really does give you a different sort of relationship parenting gives you a different relationship with time in many ways Mm -hmm. um which is a which is a very interesting experience but okay so tell us a little bit about buddhist psychology like just give us some foundation to that and uh because that that i think that's quite interesting yeah i mean it's it's such a broad broad topic and it's a topic that I think at this point, in many ways, has already been so intermingled in conversations with, with various forms of Western psychology, you know, whether that's, you know, Jung, you know, you, you mentioned Jungian psychology, which I think there's a really deep conversation with tantric Buddhism specifically there. I mean, Jung was, you know, interested in tantra, you know, you look at fields of, you know, mindfulness based therapies, the CBT world and then the DBT world, which are directly, you know, kind of founded on Buddhist principles. You look at like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is again, directly founded on Buddhist principles. So, so it's interesting because when we talk about Buddhist psychology in relationship to Western psychology, it's, it's like, there's already such a, like, you know, it's all, it's like a flavor of ice cream. That's a mix of two other flavors, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, Okay, talk to me about, you know, cookies and cream. And you're like, okay, do you want to know about the cookies part or do you want to know about the cream part? Because <laughs> they're, you know, <laughs> we can pull those apart, you know. Um, but they're they're pretty much swirled together at this point. I, I would say that the elements, the the really important elements of Buddhist psychology as a kind of framework for looking at our lived experience. The first is the the idea of non-self, that the our sense of self is actually a process 
and how that process of self works and how it gets stuck, you know, which we could use a word that's, that's problematic, but is often the used word like ego. And, and then I would say the, the other big theme that I always come to in Buddhist psychology is looking at our, the way we react to what happens in our mind and happens in our life. We typically have kind of two extreme choices, which is when something happens, let's say, you know, let's say, I mean, you know, your child is born, right? And I think, you know, parenting brings up a fair amount of ambivalence here, and it needs to be teased apart. But you either fixate on that experience, and you really want to hold on to it, or you push that experience away, right? Mm. And so figuring out which of those we're doing in any given moment, because moments are in this self as process model, moments are happening really rapid fire, right? And figuring out what is the arising experience? And am I in a state of fixation or am I in a state of pushing it away? And the middle path then is defined as what, what does it look like for a moment? What does it feel like if I'm doing neither of those? Mm-hmm. If I'm neither pushing the experience away or fixating on it? People really misunderstand what the Buddha was talking about when he talks about the middle path. They think it's like, you know, take any two entities that exist and just choose the the middle point, you know, like mm. Mitt Romney as the middle path or something like that. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> just like what take, an analogy, you know, and, and that is not at all. I, I think Mitt right. Romney from a from a Buddhist, you know, political perspective would be far right. But anyway, <laughs> we don't have to get into that. That's very fair. That's very fair. We could I mean, we could maybe our next conversation will be about like the Buddha and politics. Yes, <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. So so I think, you know, and then there's different elements of it. I think when you get into tantric Buddhism, a basic framework, which I think is maybe adjacent to Jungian thought is this notion of co-emergence, which Mm -hmm. is a really interesting, which is the notion that if you take any particular emotional experience specifically, like let's say desire, let's say anger, that that state of experience has an awakened quality that's full of compassion, full of, you know, skillfulness, full of effectiveness, a a way to behold that state that is basically Buddha-like, that is awakened. And then also, if we're not actually in tune with the middle path of that energy, becomes this kind of like stuck habitual energy that can lead to destructive behaviors and and confusion, Mm -hmm. you know? So, the, the co-emergence, I think, is one of the most for, for sort of analyzing emotions or experiencing emotions from a Buddhist perspective is is definitely one of the most important frameworks of Buddhist psychology. And it's something I end up using a lot when I teach or when I'm working with students. Yeah, well, let's let's talk more about that and just the, the practicality of of co-emergence and, and how someone that maybe is coming into that term for the first time, or maybe has heard of it before, where does that show up? Like, how do they become more aware of that? How is it a- applicable? Because what I hear you saying is that there's a, and maybe we can sort of piece this apart, but there's the emergence of the experience, and then there's the awareness of th- that emergence. Is that what you're saying? This is, I think this is the, a way that Buddhist thought, Buddhist practice, and Buddhist psychology is constantly misunderstood. Uh, and some of this is because of translations, and some of this is just because you know, it's, it's very hard to grasp. There is pretty much from a Buddhist perspective, as far as I understand it, nothing is problematized in its phase of arising as in, in our emotional realm. Like there's so no, like if we have, if we have like a, 
a really like rage-filled reaction come up or an immense wave of grief, that's not a pro- it's not a problem. It's from not a problem. It's not necessarily confused. I mean, it may be the result of previous habitual uh, relationships to the world or to that form of an experience, right? Mm-hmm. To that type of an experience. But in the moment of its arising, it's not confused inherently. It's just, it, it's actually what's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now we could say, is that happening subjectively or what's happening objectively? I mean, it's what's happening for the person who's perceiving it, you know, so for the being who's, who's experiencing it. And then the mind out of habitual, either, you know, ignorance out of whatever we have been trained in our experience to do with this emotion, the mind either grasps onto it and says like, yeah, that's, that's going to make me safe in an uncertain universe, or we try to push it away. So, you, you know, like people often translate like the Buddhist like modes of confusion as emotions. And I think this is one of the real detrimental things that happens when, when Buddhist thought is translated into Western languages is you end up saying like, oh, anger is a bad thing in Buddhism, mm-hmm. right? And you go, no, 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 anger is an arising event. Mm-hmm. Aversion is the confused response. But this is a really tricky thing to explain. The aversion that's that's called confused is actually in response to whatever just arose. Mm-hmm. So whatever just arose could be whatever it is. It could be anger. It could be jealousy. It could be desire. It could be grief, you know. And then there's a moment where you say, I don't want to feel that or it's not okay to feel that. And you push it away. So you can have aversion towards desire, right? Aversion is not necessarily anger. You can have aversion towards sadness. And that as habitual patterns, the the grasping and aversion, those are considered where we start to go astray. Still, still good beings trying our best. I mean, this isn't a situation that everybody hasn't felt, but it's we're not problematizing any emotional state. And that becomes the most clear in in the tantric models where the emotional states are actually ceremonialized. They're given Mm -hmm. life and colors related to each of them and and their own kind of uh, sacredness, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, I think that's why, other than the fact that it's what I grew up with, I mean, I've, I've studied, you know, multiple kinds of Buddhism and have, you know, for the last 20 or so years have been a casual but dedicated student of western psychology to a certain degree and that's why i really like tantric buddhism is because it gives you kind of a a language and symbolism for core emotions you know Mm -hmm. and and holds them in this realm of uh, co-emergence where there's actually a lot of celebration and then there's a lot of accountability when we get stuck with our emotions and the the confused reactions we have from there yeah i think what i hear if I'm correct, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that there's a, a kind of reverence for the emerging experience, right? When we have anger come up, when we have sadness or grief come up, emotions that we would sometimes uh, or, or traditionally sort of automatically label as being a problem or being wrong, right? If you've been told throughout your childhood, like, you, you shouldn't be angry, right? Don't get angry or you know, to stuff down your sadness, or it's not okay to cry, or, you know, whatever, whatever the narrative has been, when that experience emerges within you, and you have the sort of predilection to label that as a problem or an issue, that within Buddhism, within the form of Buddhism that you're talking about, what we can do is take a stance of this isn't a problem, I'm 
I'm witnessing it? Or how do we then interact with that emerging experience that we're becoming aware of? Exactly, exactly. And and we have a lot of cultural baggage around this. Like like just colloquially, you see, you know, you see a child who's sad or you see a grown-up who's sad. The way to check in with them is to say what's wrong, you right. know, which yeah. is like this <laughs> yeah. culturally ingrained aversion towards the arising experience. You know, yeah. that's not what we mean. We don't even know. I mean, that's the ignorant part. We don't even know what we're doing. Like yeah. a person could say, oh, I'm just sad because my aunt, you know, passed away or something like that. And we're like, oh, you know, we want to comfort the person. But the way into the conversation, the bias is what's wrong? Why are you feeling so much? Right, 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 right. Well, I think we, uh, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think I've said this before uh, somewhere, but, you know, Terrence McKenna talked about how language is a technology. It's like a human technology. And I think in many ways, you, you know, language is our main form of interacting. And yet most of us aren't necessarily conscious of the language that we're using and the implications and the impact of that of that language, of that form of, of communication. And so uh, I, I really appreciate what you're saying there because it's almost like we can start to shift the the manner in which we interact, right? Because when we're saying what's wrong, maybe what we're actually trying to say is, what are you experiencing right now? Yeah. You know, what's yeah. happening? What's happening inside of you? Because I don't really know. And that might produce a very different result. So I think maybe what I'm trying to ask is, some practical steps that, and I know that this is uh, <laughs> some practical steps for people to to practice. Like, how do they embrace this? Because I think sometimes it can be a little um, ethereal at, yeah. at best, you know, and, and it can be complicated, as you're saying. Uh, it's almost like a Zen koan, right? It's like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? It's like, well, what do I do with that koan? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but how do people start to integrate or embrace these practices of this way of being outside of becoming aware of the emerging experience that might be happening within them. Yeah, I mean, I do think it starts and this is why like the bad news teaching Buddhism is I mean, you you could just teach scholarly or academic Buddhism, but but the bad news is that there there's the, the way that it starts makes a lot of sense, which is that this is this is what the formal practice of meditation is about mm -hmm. as a little flight simulator is you you settle your body and you could you know you could do a moving meditation for sure but but mm -hmm. the notion of settling the body so that the field of stimulus is a little bit more contained and and the nervous system can maybe be activated a little bit of the parasympathetic nervous system and downregulate the whole thing oftentimes we start by anchoring on mm -hmm. felt centralizing experience like the breath although a lot of people that's not that's not the best way to settle the mind actually a lot of people who are struggling with trauma can't really find the body awareness can actually be triggering. So there's different meditations. But but the notion of beginning to have some kind of anchoring practice where you can start to notice the mind without having to do a lot and you start mm -hmm. to have this kind of moment by moment, almost like a like the ticker, the Chiron on like, you know, cable news or something, which I don't necessarily recommend watching cable news if you want to be mindful. But um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter, so I don't have much uh, ability to talk there. But just sort of spotting the, the arising moment, right, again and again, without problematizing the arising moment, right? So, so in some traditions, it starts with mindfulness of breath, but then eventually, like in, in the insight tradition, you move towards 
noting practice, which is just like, can you note the arising, if the arising experience is anger, you know, then can you just note anger without, without adding to it? You know, mm. one of the translations for mindfulness is bear attention. And I really like that. It's like, it's not meant to be minimalist. It's, it's just meant to be saying like, we are constantly adding to what's going on. And the mm. question is like, can you just note moment by moment what's happening? And then you miss a lot of moments and then you just come back to like, okay, what's happening now? Breath, sadness, right? Itch, you know? And, and it's just a training mechanism for actually trying to like not problematize the arising experience and to start seeing how quickly the arising experience is flowing and actually how much is happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of other meditation practices. You know, Buddhism is, is quite diverse in terms of the, the meditative, you know, disciplines. But then I think also, you know, what, what we Buddhists sometimes call post-meditation, which is a huge realm if somebody's not falling in love with meditation, of like just checking in with our culture around like how many assumptions we make about what is happening rather than, so what, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? And, you know, that's like that simple shift from you see somebody sad rather than saying what's wrong to finding some loving way to say, so what's happening? You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how are you? That's a really good one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting because I think part of it of what you're alluding to is to like normalize the experience of what is happening when we become aware of it, right? Because in some ways we are sort of amnesic slumbering creatures and we are we're quite the the unconscious content that's constantly pouring into our conscious awareness and the stimulus that we're receiving is a lot of information that we're generally not aware, not even aware of and and not equipped to sort of handle and I know that for myself when I started meditating you know 12 14 years ago it was freaking hard man oh, yeah, like it's so to hard. just sit and all of a sudden become aware of all of the noise and the thoughts and the experience, you know, physically in my body. I mean, it was, it was really like sort of drinking from a fire hose. Yes. And that was quite challenging. It took me quite a while. You know, I practiced Zazen meditation. I practiced a bunch of different forms to try and find what would work for me. I had to sort of be relentless with it and sort of stick, stick to that. The big shift that came for me was when I was when I started to taper off or give myself permission to not villainize what my experience was, mm -hmm. because I had this story that I shouldn't have so many thoughts or it shouldn't be so noisy or, you know, my body should want to be calm. And that was, you know, that was a, a, a very challenging experience to to be with initially. So. One of the things that you talk about, which I think might be relevant for our listeners, is the idea that there's wisdom within anger or that anger can be a source of wisdom. Can you maybe just unravel that a little bit? Because I think that that's helpful for, for everyone. Sure. I mean, in the tantric framework, there's five in, in, in this one mandala, there's, uh, which is one of the things Jung was, was interested in. There's, there's basically five core emotions. And I mean, there's all kinds of subsidiary emotions, but five core emotions. And, and one of them is anger. And the, the sort of, so I think we know to a certain degree that the confused aspect of anger, right? Mm. Which is, you know, destructive, you know, just eruptions of destructive behavior or 
you know, cool anger, which is like passive aggressive or, you know, snideness or, and so forth. But the, the wisdom side is like really seeing, seeing something is wrong, you know, and that something is like, there, there, there's a clarity to anger and, and it can, it, it can go towards a lot of different things, but there's just sort of a, a good injustice meter, you know, with anger, like you see, and the problem is like, do, how can you actually see an injustice without recreating hmm. the grounds of the aggressive behaviors that are at play in the injustice? Like I remember, you know, when I was just starting to teach going to like Iraq war protests in like 2002 and like, you know, a lot of us were unhinged and we were at an anti-war protest, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Meeting so, fire with fire. Yeah. So you get, you get that quality. I mean, yeah. And then, I mean, you know, we could apply that to anything. Like when you see abusive behavior by police, it's like, wait, you're supposed to be protecting the people mm-hmm. you're abusing or, you know, like, does that seem off to you? Like you're the protector. Can we just stop for a moment? You know, and then later we can go into, well, here's why I did that. Or here's where, how the system works. And it's not like, it's not necessarily an individual's fault, but can we just start with like, does this seem off? You know, mm-hmm. Like when I look at the Middle East right now, I'm like, y'all are cousins. Mm-hmm. You are from the same tribe, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and, and there's a kind of and you can feel yourself get elevated when the mm-hmm. when the clarity of the injustice kind of comes in, which is the energy of anger. And then how do you actually navigate that? You know, then the first part, I think, of working with the wisdom of anger is we've been taught so often spiritually that anger is the bad thing, right? So we never developed a relationship with it because mm-hmm. we're taught, like, don't go there, you know, and then it's like, OK, but I think it's telling me all these things that are true at the same time that it might lead me to engage in some destructive behavior. So mm. how do I hold both of those? And if, if your only message is anger is bad, anger is bad, anger is bad, anger is bad. At a certain point, it's going to erupt because you're like, but but all these things are true. And so. Another word for the uh, wisdom of anger is called mirror-like wisdom. Hmm. The wisdom of anger sees it like, like water, right? It sees situations clearly and reflectively, but then the water boils and, and burns, you know? So, so, but I think we're living in a time, you know, especially coming out of the, the Trump era where the notion of, you know, more progressively minded spiritual people being like, yes, we're angry. We don't want to just perpetuate the same confusion that created these systems but like actually like spiritual practitioners need to actually adjust to their own anger i think if we want to live in the world and and see human society have a chance of surviving you know yeah yeah well said uh, well well said and thank you for that and I, I i would i would agree entirely i think one of my previous guests uh who's a therapist named francis weller he talks about the archetype of anger called sacred rage uh, or holy outrage. And it's, I think, in some ways, akin to what you're talking about, that we develop an actual relationship with our anger so that we can see where it's, where it's actually identifying injustices, right? Moral injustices, because we can sort of feel those things physically, and then beginning to work with that quality of anger within us as a means of uh, not allowing it to move into that aggressive form again, as I think it can very quickly happen, right? It's almost like once once the once that sort of like clear anger comes out, it, we can very quickly move into that space of aggressive, you know, volatility 
again. And so I appreciate what you're saying. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up here soon. I feel like we could jam on this topic for a while. We didn't even get into you know Buddhism and and dealing with the sort of chaos that we are sitting in right now. But I'm I'm hoping that maybe you can just end off with a little bit of that of how Buddhism is maybe applicable for navigating the chaotic soup uh, that we that we seem to be in in, in a time of you know, in, in a troubled time in some ways, in a chaotic time where a lot of people are, I think some people are are lost, some people are looking for hope, some people are, you know, hoping that things just sort of go back to normal. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious about what, what insight, what lifeline would you would you offer from from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, no, no, not a, not a big question to end off with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, chaos is such a vague I mean, I think part of it is a recognition of like, not that we should ever like just want to, you know, destroy everything, but chaos is like, it's intrinsic to a vast interdependent interwoven and constantly in flux and a flow system. You know, Mm. I, I see the larger issue as, you know, when you look at like practices like spiritual ethics those basically work amongst people who agree to the organizing principles, you know? So like you can practice like mindful speech amongst, if everybody's saying like, we all want to, you know, try to practice like telling the truth, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But as soon as one person says, I actually see a way to gain power through manipulating truth, it's going to become harder, you know? And I think part of it is we have such an interwoven planet climate wise, you know, and I think a lot of us want to figure out how to navigate the chaos in a healthy way and create, you know, a functional human society. And then, you know, I mean, this is what what feels so fragile about the world right now in the United States is there's there's a large group of people who just don't seem like they believe in society as a thing. Like literally, that is something that that feels like a conspiracy. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you want me to engage in society, I'm I want to opt out, you know. Mm-hmm. To to the point where wearing a mask so you don't get someone else sick is considered like oppression, you know? Like it's mm-hmm. it's that it's a level of opt out where there's there's a like just such a pushback against the idea of responsibility to anybody else. And I think those of us who actually care about interdependence and and kind of want to figure out a way to navigate like this world with 8 billion people somehow surviving resource wise into the 21st and 22nd century. Like, I just think we have to demonstrate kind of joy in trying to actually navigate the chaos for ourselves and together like that, that, and I think that's where Buddhism can be helpful. It's the idea that like, you can actually start to realize that chaos is the nature of things, just like heartbreak is the nature of things. And then be like, yep, I'm still going to show up and work on this. You know, I'm still going to wear my mask if that's what's needed because, and you know what? That's okay. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it's such a conundrum in some ways because there are, you know, we, we're also living in a time where all of a sudden there are infringements of civil privacies and civil liberties from a, especially from a tech, technological and technocratic perspective where, you know, all of a sudden certain countries have more access and more capacity and ability to 
not only sort of like track and watch your every move, but be to, to be able to infringe on your ability to do those things. You know, I think some of the programs coming that are already in existence in countries like China yeah. and, you know, sort of covertly in the United States, as has been revealed over the years, I think it's, it's interesting because there's, you know, this brings us back to that middle path of like, how do you find that middle path in, yeah. in situations where there are, one could argue that there is no sort of like one size fits all. Yeah. So more, more to come on that. I feel like we could maybe have a discourse around that next time of, you know, how to engage in a society that, that we're living in right now based on that middle path and what it actually looks like. So do you want to maybe just say anything on, on that middle path before we end off here? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the middle path also from a Buddhist perspective includes a lot of compassion, right? So, mm. So it includes a sense and and navigating, you know, like civil liberties and all these things, which I think, you know, it's it's I mean, that's an incredibly important debate if we want to honestly have the debate uh, of like what is public and what is private. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's a very fruitful political debate if we're actually having that debate and everybody's trying to have like actually take care of themselves and take care of other people. If, if that's how you enter the debate in good faith, it's mm-hmm. always going to be an important debate. So I think that's part of the middle path is there's also this sense of from being present with bare attention, there's actually this sense of growing compassion towards humanity, towards yourself, towards others, towards whatever is arising. And I think that's that's what allows you to actually embrace the chaos a little bit mm-hmm. or um, not fixate on the chaos, but to like, sort of be like, all right, this is where we are. I, I like you. I like me. Like, let's figure it out, you know? Mm. And, you know, I think parenting, I mean, this is your first child, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you're right. You look, you look pretty well rested for, for nine <laughs> weeks deep. I gotta say, so maybe you should just do a podcast of like men's health and beauty tips for, for right. new right, fathers. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, that's a good practice for me for embracing the chaos. Like, mm. I love you. I like you. You're ridiculously immature. How am I going to share this world with you? Mm-hmm. And you're bringing up all my immature qualities too, that I thought I had overcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've sat and done a lot of meditation and a lot of breath work. And yet, as soon as I see that comment online, <laughs> as soon as I see that comment online or that, that perspective, it brings up all my, yeah. All my immaturities. Yeah. Very well said. Well, thank you so much, Ethan, for your time. Where can people go to learn more about you? You've got a couple really phenomenal books out there, uh, including The Road Home, A Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Faith. Uh, so where can people go to learn more about you? Uh, com, and also have uh, a podcast that's called The Road Home, too, that's based on uh, the book, The Road Home, and have a lot of, a lot of really cool guests. We'll have you on at some time. Awesome. Yeah. Wonderful. And I have to say this, I haven't read it yet, but I'm so excited to get into it. Uh, you wrote a book called The Dharma of the Princess Bride. Yes. What, what the coolest fairy tale of our time can teach us about Buddhism and relationships, which I think is phenomenal. I just made my wife watch it for the first time the other day. Oh, yeah. It was like a classic growing up. My family watched it, you know, dozens and dozens of times. So I can't wait to dig into that. Um, yeah. I, I, it has something to do with embracing the chaos of the present moment, lo- loving that movie. But yeah, yeah. That's fair. Um, that's, I, I can see that. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so uh, much for joining me. For everyone that's out there, please share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy listening to it. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.